Hello, everybody, and welcome. Happy Friday. It is November the 10th. This is episode 54. It is our rebrand episode. So thank you for joining and welcome to the Shape of Tomorrow podcast. I'm so looking forward to getting into today's show, talking a little bit about how we came up with the name The Shape of Tomorrow talking a little bit about strategy, talking a little bit about artificial intelligence, talking about where this show will go over the next number of weeks and months and in the year to come. So thanks again for joining everyone. I hope that you are doing splendidly. I am Michael Iani Polarchio, your host here on The Shape of Tomorrow. Let's buckle up. Let's get going. It's been quite a week, and I'm so happy to finally unveil the new name for my personal podcast, The Shape of Tomorrow. This is episode 54. I just want to keep incrementing our episode count since it's still my personal podcast, even though we're renaming it just because I am moving into new areas of work in 2024. Um, And as I've mentioned before, The previous name was really related to an element to the work I was doing at Branksome Hall. Um, They'll retain that, and I look forward to them relaunching that. But here we are, the shape of tomorrow. Now, you might be asking, you know, how did we come up with this name? What went into this? Why um, call this podcast the shape of tomorrow? Well, I really wanted, you know, something in the title of this show that was really a reflection of my commitment to exploring, you know, the frontiers of innovation, which has been a theme that has really been the foundation of our conversations. But there's some added dimensions now. You know, the word shape itself implies that the future is not a fixed entity, but more like a canvas that is really waiting for us to act upon it, for us to bring our creativity, our our ingenuity, and our collective action. It represents the power of ideas to mold our coming days. And that's why I wanted shape. We have the ability to shape. And as I transition from sort of the previous themes in the podcast to the shape of tomorrow, I want to be able to expand the scope, move beyond just looking at innovation to really its far-reaching implications, how innovation helps to shape tomorrow. And I want, you know, the evolution of the podcast to mirror the path from an idea's inception to its transformative impact on the world. And so with each episode, I'm going to strive, one of the goals I'm setting for myself is to really aim to offer a window into trends, uh, technology, and strategic thinking that defines our future. And this is a future of work. It's a future of education. It's a future of technological change. It's a future of how we live, 
how we play, how we interact with every with each other. I want to be able to look at all of these things through the lens of futurism and strategy. And so in picking this title, The Shape of Tomorrow, I really wanted it, again, to, like I said, be symbolic or representative of my commitment, which is to bring you, the listening audience, the most thought-provoking insights and to question the status quo, that doesn't change, but also to engage with the visionary thinkers that are shaping our world, to bring to you the, the just amazing technologies that are emerging and will really reshape our world. And together, each week, we'll navigate all of these various complexities and mess and and fears and excitement of tomorrow and, and really gain an understanding that the future is not just something that we predict or plan for or wait for, but that it's something we can create. So my kind of opening statement is really treat this rebrand and this rename as an invitation. Come and embark with me on this journey of curiosity. Bring your passion and your curiosity and your questions to each week. The Shape of Tomorrow is really meant to inspire you about tomorrow. It's meant to prepare you for what comes tomorrow. It's for us to collectively understand what that shape, how what's it shaping up to be, but also how can we shape that? How can you shape it for yourself? How can you shape it for your organization? How can we shape it for the world as a whole? So that is where the name came from. It might take a little time to get used to, but I felt really good that this is sort of where I've landed. And again, this is a personal podcast, just like my previous one. All the opinions reflected here and the thoughts that I reflect are my own. They're not um, linked or through you know, where I work, whether it be my remaining days here at Branksome Hall or whether it be all of the exciting things that I'll be doing and working with amazing people at Project X. This is an, an independent podcast. I think I've talked before that for me, it's part of my reflective process. It's part of the way I develop ideas, socialize ideas. It's the way I connect with a broad community. And as I transition from my role that I've been in for the last eight years, and we talked about reinvention, I'm thinking a lot about tomorrow, about the future and the shape of tomorrow. And hence the name. So here we are. We won't belabor the point anymore. Welcome, welcome. I'm so glad that you are joining me. Let's move into the segments uh, and topics for today's episode here on The Shape of Tomorrow. It's been just a, a great week. I've had so many sort of varied things that I've been able to be involved in early in the week. 
I had an opportunity to lead a session on artificial intelligence with a group of educators, which was just awesome. I, I used uh, a site uh, slash service from Google called Teachable Machines. Um, I wanted to introduce these educators not just to how do we use ChatGPT or how do we use BARD, you know, what other tools are there developing uh, that are AI in, in education. I wanted to bring them to the very basics, the very foundation, to an understanding of how large language models or large image models are trained. And this tool, Teachable Machines, uh, allowed me to show them uh, through a very simple interface. We created a, a fun little app um, that uh, we trained the model to identify when students or a person, because we were all adults in the room, but so when a person, a learner, is either engaged in what's happening in the classroom, bored with what's happening in the classroom, or distracted while they're in the classroom. And it was really a great exercise. Uh, we sampled a whole bunch of images of myself for each of these three classifications, me looking engaged, me looking bored, me being distracted. You know, I brought my phone out or I had my head turned so the camera uh, could only see the side of my head. And by uploading several hundred images of myself in each of those three classifications, we then watched as this technology from Google, its artificial intelligence sort of training models, took all of that data and trained itself. So then, in real time, as I stared you know, intently with a smile on my face and a bit of a lean forward, the tool was showing these educators who were, who were participating in my workshop that it was detecting that I was engaged. And then when I picked up my phone and I took a look at it, uh, it, it signaled, there's a little bar graph in the bottom right-hand corner of the tool showing uh, I am now detecting a state of distraction. And, and I think people were quite fascinated because we hear about these AI models being trained, ChatGPT for you know, being trained. What does that mean? And they got to see that. And then I brought up one of my, my colleagues uh, and it got some you know, it, it noticed that he was engaged, but not as readily detecting that he was bored. And I explained to them it's because the data set, even though there were hundreds of photos for each of the states, they're all photos of me. So we sampled some images of my colleague. He wasn't wearing glasses. He doesn't have a goatee. And by adding several hundred images of my colleague, we retrained the model and the model becomes better. And I was so happy when an educator raised their hand and said, is this the way, is this why there's bias? You know, everyone hears about bias in AI systems, but I don't think anyone really understands that. But this visual demonstration triggered in this educator for her to ask, is this how bias gets into the system? It was just so concrete. And I told her, yes, because we've sampled, sure, there's, 1,200 images that have gone into this, still a very small, small set of images, if you think about the hundreds of millions of images 
that have been used to train tools like OpenAI or MidJourney. Um, but they could see right away how if you don't have really robust data sets, so for instance, if we had brought up um, one of our female educators, maybe someone with long hair, it, it likely would have not been as sure, it may have even identified, misidentified uh, the classification. You'd have to sample that person. And so it became very evident. And, I, and that was just a real highlight of my week. One, to be working with educators like that. Um, and secondly, just to see uh, light bulbs coming on for people as we, as we really dig into some of the underlying aspects of this technology. The other thing that was great for any of you who were in my session uh, who might be listening, one of the things I was just so happy about, it was a really diverse group of educators, many of whom I haven't um, uh, had the pleasure of having in, in some of my workshops. And so it was really lovely to see such a, a diverse and new group of people. So there's a highlight of my week. I have to say as well, you know, I've got some new books that have come in. I don't want to go through them uh, because uh, I'm just sort of cracking into them and we'll sort of save a book segment once a month. But I did uh, want to give a shout out to a very uh, good friend of mine, dear friend of mine, uh, a colleague from many years ago. I was sort of reflecting, you know, we had had the pleasure of working together 23 years ago and have stayed in touch. Um, This is Heather Kernahan. She came out with a book. Um, which arrived uh, on my doorstep on Monday. Uh, she's written a book called Unstuckable, Never Be Stuck in Business Again with Tools from Tech Innovators. And I was just so, I was just so pleased uh, for her and happy for her. Um, I've only just begun reading the book, so I'm not going to talk too much about the book, but it's, it's, it's really drawing on, on Heather's uh, wisdom uh, and her journey. Um, she is a global business leader, uh, and she's been featured in all kinds of publications, Fast Company, Fortune, um, and she is currently the, the, the global CEO of Hotwire Global, which is an award-winning global tech communications and marketing consulting uh, company, professional services firm. Um, uh, she was named, she lives in, in San Francisco, so she was named one of um, the San Francisco Business Times 100 Most Influential Women um, and North American Innovator of the Year. Uh, and again, I'm so happy. Uh, and so uh, that was a highlight of my week as well. I got to, you know, engage with colleagues of mine in and around this remarkable innovation center that I have been so lucky to be a part of uh, designing, uh, input on the design of this space. Um, and it is currently uh, under construction. We're still a couple of years away from this being completed. Um, there's construction that's happening on the campus. But today we had um, many people together, a really another diverse group. Uh, I'd say there was probably about, I don't know, I'm going to hazard a guess, 20 to 25 people, um, end users that we were stepping through a visual, really well-rendered um, representations of various spaces inside this building to begin to provoke this group to think about you know, what excites them about the space, what worries them about the space, what do they think they could do in the space, what do they think they may need in the space. 
they were just some really good conversations. And I was inspired because it made me reflect on the importance of um, getting user input. You know, we've gotten a lot of user input through every stage of this particular process. And now that the design has been finalized, there needs to be a lot of work done in the area of how will it be used. Otherwise, the building will open. And if we're unsure how something is to be used, it either doesn't get used or it gets misused or it could just be reassigned, I guess, the, the, for lack of a better word. It could be the original vision could be abandoned and it just gets used in a traditional way or it becomes spillover classroom space. Um, and so I was so pleased to see people engaging in this kind of hard work because it is hard work to try and understand how you will use something that doesn't exist yet. Um, and I think it's great that uh, leaders at our school um, were engaging end users this way because they understand the importance of repeated user input. Think of the design thinking cycle. You have to go out and test at every iteration you have to gather feedback. You have to feed that back into the process. So even though the design of the building has been set, again, it's being built. What happens in those spaces? Um, some of the details, equipment, furniture, those are still pieces that there's flux. And so it's good to get input that you can take into the next sort of iteration of that design thinking cycle. So another highlight of my week. Lots of highlights of my week. It's been a short week. So Friday uh, today is, is um, a day off for the school. And again, so grateful just to have that ability to have space, additional space in the week to be reflective uh, and to hang out uh, with uh, some very close uh, friends of ours. Uh, and that has been a highlight of my week. So lots of highlights in my week, in addition to just being so happy to relaunch um, the podcast. And so thank you for joining The Shape of Tomorrow. Now let's take a brief pause and let's jump into a really important segment, which is how... Technology can have this cascading ripple effect that really flows out into the future in very unexpected ways. Welcome back. I want to take a look at how technology change, technological change, new technologies can so profoundly reshape life in ways that the original technology itself might not indicate. You know, we've got artificial intelligence landing. It's landed. It's moving quickly. 
And we can see all kinds of things. We've talked about it, all kinds of ways that it's, it's changing things in very, you know, um, direct ways. You know, it can help us do things faster. It can, but we've talked about all of the various functional things that artificial intelligence can do. But I want to stress that when you think about where this new technology can have an impact in the years to come, it's a very real and likely thing. And to appreciate it, I want us to step back in time to the time that the iPhone arrived. So I think it's a good parallel example. Because when the iPhone arrived, of course, you look at it and say, wow, this has the, the ability to reshape the wireless you know, mobile phone industry. Yes. Uh, and it did that. You know, it decimated um, large traditional players. Think of Nokia. Think of BlackBerry. These are players that Apple set out to disrupt by introducing the iPhone. But the iPhone itself, from the very beginning, since its genesis, it's really been an example of technological convergence. It goes beyond just displacing the phone, traditional phone market. It goes way beyond just transforming uh, how we, we used our phones. It redefined our engagement with all kinds of things. Just think of all of the, the things that were impacted by the iPhone. You know, we used to have a mobile phone. It impacted that. We know that. We knew that would happen. We used to carry music players, Walkman, Discman. Think about how you listen to music if you go back 15 years or 20 years ago. The iPhone disrupted that. Think about uh, navigation, GPS. Right? People had GPSs in their car, built into their car, automobiles, um, the GPS devices that you would suction cup inside your automobile, gone. It replaced that. Think of um, dedicated reading devices like the Kindle, which is already, you know, it's a device that was displacing the traditional book industry. Well, suddenly that's built into, that functionality is built into the iPhone. It goes beyond that, though. That's almost like the second wave. So if the first wave of disruption is the phone market, picture a ripple. It's going out into the future. That second ripple is impacting all of these types of services. The use of the iPhone, there's a third and a fourth ripple that emerge. It starts to change user behavior. I'm going to pick some examples. It redefined our engagement with various forms of media. And I'm going to focus on television and gaming specifically. Just because there's too many to list. 
but its input, uh, sorry, its impact has really, you can see these significant shifts in how content starts to get consumed. Okay? So people start becoming very used to shifting away. If I think back 20 years ago, you want to watch a movie, you're watching it on your TV. Even though streaming came along, think of Netflix, you're watching it on your TV. Right? That's a great example of a technology disrupting that industry. But the iPhone is, is shifting user behavior. We start to watch more content on our mobile device. Think of the young people today who watch YouTube, who watch movies. Think of yourself. The last movie you watched, did you watch it on a TV or did you watch it on a mobile device? The last television show you watched. How much of your watching of traditional content has shifted to things like YouTube through a mobile device? And as that behavior is changing, let's look at the video game market. And even if you're not a gamer, you'll be able to see what's happening here. Video games for a very long time have been played on sophisticated consoles, sophisticated pieces of hardware that are connected to your television. There have been handheld kind of mobile gaming units for many years, but they've never really taken off. They've always had shortcomings. There's been some that have been more successful than others, if I, if I think of Nintendo, and they've got a very specific strategy as to why that's the case. They have exclusive content that belongs to them and only runs on these portable devices. But by and large, mobile gaming has not been a serious thing. Why? Because people want to play that on your TV. People want it to look great. People want to play very high-end games that can only be played on sophisticated hardware. Of course, again, people playing on laptops and desktop computers. I'm talking about mass market. But the iPhone, this device that came to disrupt the phone industry and then started to consume other industry areas, GPS, cameras, um, all these types of things that it is able to do and starts to, to basically obsolete these things. As we use this device, our behaviors are changing. And today when you look there's been an explosion now of very sophisticated mobile gaming devices. Very sophisticated. I'm thinking of things like the Steam Deck from a company called Valve. I'm thinking of traditional laptop and computer makers like Lenovo. You've probably all heard of Lenovo, who make enterprise hardware, now releasing a very sophisticated handheld gaming device called the Legion Go. And people are adopting this. Why? Because our behaviors have changed. If you think of the realm of television, the iPhone catalyzed a transition from traditional schedule-bound viewing to an on-demand mobile experience. And this transformation is really grounded in the device's capability to stream content through applications 
and enabling personalized choice, a personalized, unique, bespoke viewing experience. We become, our behaviors change and our expectations as users change. Societal norms change. The portability, think of the iPhone, suddenly this portable high-end computing device allows users to transcend spatial constraints that were in place, turning every environment into a potential personal media consumption, a personal theater. Think about TVs in rooms, if you set them up with speakers and you could basically people had home theaters. Our behavior changed. And the implications of this are really quite profound because they signal a departure from communal viewing to more individual, like an individual practice, very individualistic approach. And this personalization is further reinforced by recommendation algorithms, which curate content to match each individual's preference, thus further shaping uh, our viewing habits around personalized streams of content. And if you, if you shift back to this trend, this in our change of behavior and the consumption of media, we see that the iPhone has revolutionized gaming by democratizing the platform. It transformed games from a niche community, people with specialized PCs, you know, people buying expensive hardware that connected to TVs and kind of, you know, would monopolize that TV, the central sort of TV in a home or you'd need a second TV. It transformed that experience from niche communities into a very broad, diverse audience. You know, think about the iPhone with its sophisticated touch interface. It's got all these sensors and accelerometers. It introduced different ways that we can interact with games. Game developers themselves start experimenting and start harnessing this hardware and this experience to create very unique immersive experiences. So you can see how a technology like the iPhone has this resounding ripple effect. When it lands, when it landed, on the day it was unveiled, on the day that, you know, the first iPhone was sold, in that first year that millions of devices were, 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 were picked up, you're impacting the telecom industry, the phone industry. But that has a ripple effect into the future to present day. And that's where we are with artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence right now is like that first stone that has fallen into the pond of time. And the ripples are just beginning. And in 5, 10, 15 years, it will have reshaped so many of our behaviors in ways we can't even imagine today. That's why as leaders inside organizations, we really, really need to start thinking about how do we prepare? Because it will be unlike anything we've ever seen before. It's going to happen faster. It's going to be more transformational. The iPhone, you can see, has disrupted many industry areas 
It's transformed user behavior. It's happened, it's happened quickly, but compared to what we will see, it was slow. And in our next segment, I'm going to talk about how organizations and you as leaders inside of organizations can take a first step in this direction. Professional development. We have talked about this a number of times. You may recall I did a, a leadership series over the summertime, which was uh, so positively uh, received. It was just terrific. And we've talked about the importance of professional development uh, in this day and age uh, many times. Today, I want to frame this discussion through the lens of artificial intelligence, the era of artificial intelligence, coupled with exponential change. When you think of the world we find ourselves in, this relentless pace of innovation, the landscape of the workplace is undergoing a seismic shift. We may not even realize it at times because we're in it. You remember when I talked about in last week's episode how we increasingly feel off balance. We increasingly feel like things aren't exactly stable. We increasingly see disruption. Now, this is, these are signals of this seismic shift that I'm talking about. And as leaders in this dynamic era, it's absolutely crucial, I believe, to distinguish between professional development and reskilling within our organizations. Don't get me wrong, professional development is important. It's hugely important. Professional development, though, it's about refining and enhancing the skills we already possess, those things that we already have. It's more evolutionary in nature. I like to think of it, you know, I often refer to the things in my toolkit, the innovator's toolkit or the entrepreneurial toolkit, my strategy toolkit. I look at professional development as, as things that maybe add something to that toolkit or kind of sharpen the tools inside our existing toolkit. Reskilling is very, very different. It's the process of our equipping ourselves and our teams with entirely new toolkits. And these new toolkits are designed for the jobs of tomorrow that are starting to emerge today. Now you might be asking, okay, um, I've heard of reskilling. Don't they kind of do that? And you know, when a factory's changing and they're not making cars the same way and you've got to kind of reskill your workforce. Yeah, that's been happening. But now that will touch every industry area, every organization, professional service firms, financial institutions, most certainly educational institutions. And so as leaders, you have to ask yourself, how do we transcend the traditional bounds of professional development? And the answer, I believe, lies in fostering a culture 
that not only values continuous learning, but also embraces the concept of transformative growth. Leaders have to champion the cause of reskilling as a strategic imperative, not just as a response to the changing events, the changing tides we see. If you, if you link it to being a strategic imperative, you're being proactive instead of reactive. Something we've talked about a lot. Okay? If we want to inspire and, and enable and guide those we work with, those in our departments, those in our organizations, if we want to you know, unlock their ability to embrace reskilling, we as leaders have to embody the mindset of a visionary. We have to have coaching skills that really leverage empathy. And we have to have the, the, the language, the lexicon, the acumen of a strategist. Because as visionaries, we have the opportunity to paint the picture of a future that is both compelling and attainable and illustrate how reskilling is an absolutely crucial, pivotal part of that future. Get people excited about it. Don't have them see these things as it's a downside. It's something happening to them. It's a bad thing. Give them that vision of the future and, and show them that it's a future they can be a part of, that it is attainable. As coaches, empathetic coaches, we need to be able to support and encourage our teams through the discomfort that undoubtedly comes with learning new skills. We have to provide them with the resources and the support necessary to succeed. And as strategists, we leaders have to design and implement reskilling initiatives inside our organization that align with our organizational goals and ensure that they're not just educational activities, but strategic investments in our people. If you're just churning out professional development type programs like, hey, here's a lunch and learn for you. Or if you're stepping into, yeah, we need to reskill all of these, these people inside our organization, and you don't link it to organizational goals, it will feel like make work, it will feel unfocused, it will feel uncoordinated, and people will be reluctant to step into that. In this new age, your role as a leader is really to be that architect of your team's growth and to build the scaffolding, this is a term I learned through my work at the school. This idea of we do this with students, we scaffold the learning. We have to be able to do that for our employees as well. We have to build scaffolding that allows each member of our team to climb higher than they thought possible. I think as leaders, if we champion reskilling, we're not just preparing our organization for the challenges of tomorrow, but we're also unlocking that dormant, latent potential within our teams. 
And in effect, we're catalyzing a culture of proactive evolution and revolution, I would say. And I wanted to talk about that here because think about the previous segment. I talk about these, these ripples that are coming from new technologies that are emerging, artificial intelligence. We're going to see something similar in the years to come with the arrival of, of quantum computing. We're going to be in these situations where we can't just be providing professional development. We have to really be thinking about creating this culture where reskilling is something that is embraced, that people look forward to, people step into, leaders know how to make meaningful reskilling programs. If we can't do that, you really risk becoming irrelevant in the professional development and reskilling of your employees, which in turn will impact your organization. When you think about reskilling, it's not an individual endeavor, it's a collective pursuit. The agility of your organization hinges on, on its ability to pivot when you need to. And this can really only be achieved when the people in that organization are equipped with the right tools and the right mindset to maneuver through the twists and turns that might evolve in a really rapidly ongoing, changing industry landscape. Again, whatever industry you might find yourself in. And, and leaders, I, I would say, that want to go beyond professional development, you have to serve as catalysts for change. If, if you have an inability as a leader to change, if you're too rigid, if you don't embody that, remember we talked about reinvention, you can't just use it as a word. You can't read a book or take a webinar and suddenly speak authoritatively about reinvention. You have to be a catalyst, a catalyst for change. And to be a catalyst for change, I think there's, there's two, two components to that, kind of two commitments you have to make as a leader. You have to commit to foresight, and you have to commit to action. Foresight is about understanding the trajectory of your industry, and the trends that are happening in your industry, and the trends that are happening around your industry or outside of your industry that could have an impact. And then you have to be able to identify the skill gaps that will emerge. That's the foresight piece. The action piece, on the other hand, is about creating structured programs that are really tailored, personalized, to close these gaps. This is, this is the art of reskilling. This is the art where, you know, if a leader can do this, it's kind of a blending of an art and a science here to be able to do that. It's a proactive approach to future-proofing our teams against the obsolescence of skills. And as leaders, we have to really understand how to do that. We have to understand that we need to do that. We have to understand as well the psychological undertones of reskilling. Don't forget the people. 
It's about nurturing a growth mindset within your organization. Yes, you know, a belief that abilities can be developed through dedication and, and these types of programs and giving people time. The mindset lays the foundation for, uh, for a, uh, an environment that's really um, friendly and attuned to this idea of, of reskilling. And leaders need to be the embodiment of this mindset. You have to be able to demonstrate personal commitment to your own continuous learning and development. And I wanted to talk about that here. You know, we're talking about things that impact the shape of tomorrow. And as these impacts come, we have to make sure that our organizations are prepared. And the way to do that is to make sure that we as leaders are thinking about how we prepare our employees. How we couple the traditional professional development, still very important. But if that's all you're doing, you're falling short in this day and age. You've got to couple that with a really deep understanding of when is professional development adequate, important? What does it look like? What is it giving us? Where do we need to develop reskilling? How does it happen? Who do we involve? How do we couple the two? Well, you know what the music means? We are drawing the curtain on today's conversation. And and with that, and the relaunch, I really want to extend a heartfelt thank you to all of you who have joined me. And your, your engagement and your curiosity are what really fuel the shape of tomorrow. Each episode is a tapestry really woven from threads of what I've read, what I've talked about, but also what you tell me you want to hear, what you bring to this. And this shared desire to tap into insights and peer beyond the horizon. I think today with the relaunch, I invite you to pause just for a moment after this podcast and ponder the possibilities of tomorrow. I want you to consider not just where you'll fit into the future, but how you can help shape it. I'd ask that you reflect on the discussions that I've brought to the podcast today. On the role of reskilling, for instance, and the transformative potential that it holds, the impact that technologies have on us in ways that go way beyond that initial impact. And I'd say, you know, as the podcast ends and you go about your day, I hope that in some small way you'll carry with you the knowledge. Reflect that the future is not this distant, untouchable frontier. It's a landscape that's being shaped here and now. With every decision that we make, every innovation that we embrace, every skill that we acquire, We have the power to influence the direction of where tomorrow goes. And 
part of my hope, you know, with the sort of rebranding of this podcast, I ask that, you know, lend your ideas, lend your sort of your minds and your vision to help shape this future. Share your ideas, your breakthroughs, your aspirations. Send them to me. I love hearing from the audience. Let's create a vibrant community of forward thinkers through this podcast. Let's not just wait for the future, but let's really set out to build it together. So again, I, I really want to thank you. I am your host, Michael Ianni Polarchio, a longtime strategist, computer scientist, a futurist, stepping into a new role uh, in the area, again, of data and analytics, um, and a podcaster. And I really want to thank you for tuning in. And remember, you can subscribe to the podcast. I hope that you'll share this podcast with other thought leaderships like yourself. And then join us again next week where we'll explore the shape of tomorrow. Until we connect, stay curious, stay inspired, and I'd say most importantly, just stay engaged in the art of shaping our destiny. Until we connect again next week, let me just end the way I always do and simply say thank you and ciao.